place to come and, and meet women and just to discover that though we're from different cultures, we share not only the same faith, but the same struggles and challenges as women and that we can come together like this. Um, well, if you think back to your school days, those of you who are out of school, <laughs> do you remember learning about conditional statements? A conditional statement has a hypothesis and a conclusion. It goes something like this. The month after October is November. If this month is October, then the next month is November. Now, conditional statements like that aren't taught in a grammar class. They're taught in math and science. I think that's odd. Um, it's taught in math because all kinds of logical number-related data can blow the conditional statement apart. And that's where I quit because math has never been my thing. Um, it's, it's, but it's not hard when we apply it to our spiritual life. If God governs my life with his love and goodness, then I can be content. So let's investigate that hypothesis. Does God govern my life and does he do so with love and goodness? Well, let's examine the hypothesis with a look at a couple verses from Psalm 139. The psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Well, there's our proof right there in Psalm 139. Nothing can blow apart the truth of something in God's word. So we can change the statement from conditional to absolute. Because God governs my life with his goodness and love, I can be content. Are we still getting ringing? Are we okay? All right? Okay. Now, I know we all agree with that. And as we've been saying today, our problem is less about agreeing with it. What we've been looking at is how to get it from here to here intellectual agreement to belief in the heart so that it works out in our day-to-day -day lives. When we leave this place, can we go home facing the same things we faced coming into it and have a different outlook on it, on our lives? And we have to believe this truth about God, the truth of his sovereign, overruling goodness, because we'll never find contentment if we don't trust his governing of our lives. And we'll never trust his governing 
if we don't believe he is good and compassionate and kind and not sitting back like this waiting for us to trip up, waiting for us to clean up our spiritual act and then he'll bless our lives and answer our prayers. He is good all the time, every minute to us. Can you, will you embrace the truth that God determines your destiny? Your background, the family you're born into, the places you live, the education you get, your marital status, the abilities you have, your looks, every detail. God determines our destiny. And where you are today and everything about your life has been divinely appointed. Well, we've seen that. We've also considered the fact that God's determination of our destiny includes a specific calling, or callings, plural, for each one of us. And some of these we know, some we'll find out as time goes on, and others we won't fully recognize until we get to glory. But you know today, if you're married, you know your calling includes being a wife. And if you have children, you know your calling includes raising children. If you're single, your calling includes serving God in the ways he has uniquely gifted you to serve him. And whatever your calling in terms of family and career, you've been given spiritual gifts to use for kingdom building. Paul wrote, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. We have a God-given call, responsibility, to, to use our gifts. Developing and using our spiritual gifts is a concrete part of God's call for each one of us. And at different seasons of our lives, our callings shift or change. Today's wives might be tomorrow's widows. Today's singles might be tomorrow's spouses. And today's childless might be tomorrow's mothers. Well, people ask me, I think about different callings, how do you know you were called to be single? And this is how I reply. If I get to the end of my life and I never got married, I'll know I was called to be single. <laughs> it's true though, right? Some callings we know for sure and others we don't because they change as we go. Now included in our calling somewhere along the way is the call to suffer. Paul said through many, tri many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Peter said, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if necessary, Peter said. In other words, God in his wisdom knows what difficulties to allow in each of our lives. And he knows which ones to prevent. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, Isaiah wrote. That's comforting, isn't it? Someone else's trial, you look at someone's life and think, I could never go through that. Well, God knows, maybe that, it, he knows, his calling is different. His call to suffer, his call of blessings, his call is different for each one of us. We never have to be in fear. Well, so are we willing to take that leap of faith and trust how God chooses to order our lives, the blessings he brings and those he withholds, the trials he lets in and those he keeps away? We worry if we say, 
yes, that we have to embrace our, we, have, we, we fear that if we have to brace ourselves for what God will do next, you know, what do we, how can we live like that? And we, aren't we scared sometimes if I commit to following him fully, if I say yes and fall back and say, God, whatever you want, whatever you choose to order, I will follow you. And we're scared that he's going to come along then and do something to make us holier, to make us better. And he's so much kinder and gentler than we are. And I think about a friend of mine when she was pregnant with her first child. And she's a worrier. She worries about every What if, what if, what if? You know, what if women? We can be what if women. We worry about everything. And this friend of mine is a what if person. What if I left the coffee maker on? What if I have a car wreck today? What if, what if? And it's a scary way to live. And when she was pregnant with her first child, it was winter time. And she said, what if I go into labor when my husband's at work and he can't get here in time to get me to the hospital? What if a snowstorm hits the night before and we're trapped here? And just the list went on and on and on about the what ifs. And you know what I thought at the time? I thought, well, this is what God will do. He's going to come in and let that happen. She's going to go into labor on a Monday when her husband's just gotten to the office and a snowstorm will start. <laughs> and he's going to do that to show her that he's sufficient for her. And that was my idea of how God would be good to her. And you know what God did? He put her into labor two weeks early on a Saturday when it was 60 degrees. <laughs> and that's because God is so much kinder and gentler than we are. Sometimes he just comes along and removes the difficulty. Not everything is a test and a trial. And we think it should be. We think that's how God's going to be to us. But if necessary, it's not always necessary. And he alone knows the difference. Now, as we've emphasized so much today, trusting not only God's sovereignty over our lives, but also his goodness is vital to anyone who wants to be contented. We can be content no matter our circumstances when we trust that our kind, good, loving father has his sovereign hand over everything about us. Now, if you're like me, sometimes the struggle, your struggle isn't so much that God doesn't give us what we long for. It's that he lets us languish in the desire for it. You know, right? We think about, I'm willing to go without this thing that I want so much if only God would take away my desire for it. And then we start to see that as the problem. Not that we don't have the thing we want. It's that we want it so much in the first place. We want to kill the desire. A woman longs for a baby, but year after year she can't conceive. And yet the longing doesn't go away. And she dreads being invited to yet another baby shower and going to church on Mother's Day. Or a woman married to an unbeliever longs for her husband to know the Lord, but he never changes. And a single woman longs for a husband, but none comes along, and she hears her clock ticking. These are the things that make us say, Lord, just take the longing away, and I'll be okay. Now, years ago, I used to pray that way. I'd say, Lord, I'm willing to be single, if that's your will for me. I thought that was a pretty holy prayer. I thought I was being pretty godly there. I'd say, just take away my desire for a husband so I can get on with serving you. This unmet longing hinders me and holds me back. I could be so much more fruitful of a Christian if I just didn't want this. But God didn't answer the prayer in the way I hoped. He didn't take away my longing for it. Instead, he gave me grace to be contented in the midst of it. And now I can say that while, yes, 
I'd still love to get married, but I know I'm going to have a fulfilling life either way. It's gone from being ultimate treasure to being a normal womanly desire. The difference is being able to take it or leave it. That's how we know. The singleness is what God used to teach me real contentment, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And that doesn't mean it's how he's going to teach you if you're single. He works with us as individuals. You know, sometimes when I speak to a young audience, a lot of single women, I can see them sort of sitting back going like this. And I've realized over time that they're hesitant to listen to what I have to say because they're afraid they're going to catch what I have. <laughs> That's when I say to them, no, you know what? Mm -mm. God works with us as individuals. And I try to say, I'm the exception. Very few women get into their 50s and find themselves single because God's normal ordering is marriage. So if you're young and single, don't be scared to listen today. Now, it sounds counterintuitive, but sometimes contentment comes not because God fulfills our longings, but because he leaves them unfulfilled. And this was true for the Apostle Paul. In some ways, his life was easier before he became a believer, when he was still Saul the Pharisee. He was a respected and feared Pharisee, one of the religious superstars of his day. And from a worldly perspective, he had it all going on. This well-educated man was highly regarded among his fellow Jews, and he took great pride in his efforts to keep God's law. He was known for his religious zeal and respected for it. And Saul the Pharisee would have said he was a contented man. And because of that, he had a deep-seated anger and hate toward Christians. All their talk about grace triumphing over law infuriated him because it threatened the whole foundation on which his contentment was based. And because of that, he sought to crush out Christians by persecuting them. And that's the difference between worldly contentment and that which comes from God. The worldly kind so easily crumbles. The contentment God gives is rooted in something unshakable. So that was Paul's background, and it was all prearranged by God for God's own purposes. And God had big plans for Paul, which we discover in Acts chapter 9. And I'm going to read a segment of that to you, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 3. Now as he was on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And then Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to this street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests 
to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That was it. Christ met Paul on the Damascus road that day, and Paul never looked back. Even though he was shown from the outset that his call to Christ was a call to suffer. Now, can you see the sovereign working of God there? Not only in that dramatic conversion, but in the timing of it. Saul had recently stood by overseeing the murder of Stephen, a believer who was stoned to death for his faith. God could have saved Saul before then, but he chose not to. It's clear from his letters that Paul had great remorse over that sin of stoning Stephen, being a part of that, but even that was part and parcel of God shaping him into the great apostle. Nothing, not even our bad choices along the way, are outside of God's sovereign working and his plans for our lives. So don't let regret rob you of contentment. It didn't rob Paul. And remember that you aren't where you are today because you made a mistake along the way or somehow missed God's guidance. You're where you are today because God wants you where you are today. Well, Paul gives us a picture of some of the suffering he was called to in his second letter to the Corinthians. Listen to this list of things. We heard it earlier today. The list of things he was called to go through because he followed Christ. It says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. This is in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now that doesn't sound like contentment, does it? I mean, if that's what contentment is all about, no thanks. And that's a normal reaction. It's not wrong to want to avoid suffering. It's good and right to be prayed to be spared from suffering. Nevertheless, because in God's economy, suffering brings blessing, he takes us through it. And that's why we can't look to our circumstances as the place where we're going to find contentment. And Paul got that early on in his Christian walk. And that's why he never looked there again to find his happiness. He looked elsewhere, which is why he was able to say in Philippians, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Christ had become Paul's whole life, his reason for living, and that's why he was content. It wasn't shaken when he faced the prospect of being put to death for his faith. Life or death, he didn't care so long as he had Christ. And he wrote, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, 
to live is Christ and to die is gain. Don't we see it again here? The contentment is really a matter of what we live for. If we live for Christ, contentment will characterize us because he'll never be taken away from us. And that's why I've learned to pray on a regular basis for a Philippians 1.21 heart, for me to live as Christ. I want a heart like that. Lord, please give me a heart like Paul had. Can we pray that way? And over time, I've learned that the way God answers that prayer is often to withhold fulfilling my earthly desires in the way and the time I'd like. But God is never in our debt. And that's why Paul wrote in Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. My former pastor, James Boyce, wrote something interesting about this passage. And he said here, by testing you discern that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, who do we, who do we prove that to, that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect? We don't prove it to God because he already knows his will is good and acceptable and perfect. The point is, is that if we do this, if we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, we're going to prove to ourselves that that is true. And he goes on to say that at the end of our lives, if we, if we do this, if we offer ourselves to God, at the end of our lives, as we look back on our lives, we will never regret having made that sacrifice. We will never regret it. We will look back and say, yes, God, your way with my life was good and acceptable and perfect. We will never regret it. But so long as we live for ourselves, contentment is going to remain elusive. We'll get a taste of it, but then it will evaporate as quickly as it came. And that's the way it always works if we aim toward a goal that's counter to God's goal for us. We'll never know contentment if we define it as having all our dreams come true and as we define it as the absence of suffering. Now, of course, as we keep saying, it's good and right to desire things and to pray for the end of pain and trials and tribulations in our lives and in the lives of others. But there's a big difference between not wanting trials and building our well-being on avoiding them. Because we simply can't avoid them. And from Paul, we learn that trials are always a blessing in disguise. Now, God gave Paul some spiritual insights, some special revelations that no one else had and in order to keep Paul humble about it Paul was given a thorn and he writes about that in 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 he said to, Paul writes to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me so right there we see that it's good and right to pray for relief from thorns. But Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, what is your thorn? 
Is there something in your life that seems to weigh you down and to hold you back? We've all got them. And we all do what Paul did at first. We plead with God to remove our thorn. Not only would we be happier without this thorn, we think, but how much more productive would our lives be if we didn't have it? Now, I think about the biggest thorn, I think, in my life hasn't so much been my singleness as it was um, my father. When I was a little girl, my father chose to leave our family, and um, he did. And he married somebody else and moved far away. And we didn't, we didn't see him very often, maybe a week or two a year while we were growing up. And in addition to that, he was not only geographically distant, he was emotionally very distant. He was the kind of, kind of dad you could never please. And I felt like nothing I did measured up to what he wanted. Especially when I became a Christian. He scorned that. And it was difficult having a father who's, who was like that. Of course, that's kind of an understatement. But for me, it became an idol in my life. I, started, I, I began to live to get my father's love. And I didn't feel okay without it. And when I became a teenager and then went off to college, I got into some bad things. Because when we have an idol, when we worship the wrong thing, we get sucked into that and it makes us a prisoner. We become a prisoner of our own sin. So because I idolized my father's love and I couldn't get it, I went looking for love in all the wrong places. And I had a string of destructive relationships with men. And I was miserable. And it was all in my quest to make up for what I thought I lacked in my life, which is my father's love. Not having his love was a thorn for me. It was a weakness in my life. But it's true of all thorns that God doesn't remove. It was the very thing that God used to strengthen me and to grow me and to shape my life. And what we learn from the thorns we have is that being broken is necessary. Brokenness is necessary. God doesn't let us succeed when we try to live our lives on our own terms. And he'll throw a monkey wrench in our efforts to make life work our way in order that we will know how much we need him, how much he loves us, and how much he has done for us. If I'd had my earthly father's love, I wouldn't have cared as much or felt as deeply his fatherly, God's fatherly heart. Now, my old pastor once told me during a difficult time in my life, he said, God always breaks those he really plans to use. Thorns break us. And it was true of Paul, and I know it's been true of me, and sooner or later, it will be true of you. It's true for all who bears his name. Brokenness brings contentment. And it's only in brokenness that we come to see and know the power of Christ breaking on the cross and enjoy all that that brokenness won for us.
thorns are really opportunities for a radical turnaround. God's call and the thorns that go with it will be different for each one of us, but it will always include a breaking of some sort. A thorn or two thorns, suffering. And some of us, you may well know, are living with unmet longings, and you know that that can be very real suffering. Living with unmet longings over a long period of time is suffering. And it's not wrong to admit that. It's suffering. Well, Paul's suffering kept him humble. And as we saw earlier, the reason humility is so important is that apart from it, we don't lean on Christ. Self-sufficiency is the enemy of faith. Christ's dependence is the heart of faith. And it's by leaning on him in weakness that we experience contentment and joy and peace and God's comfort. The entire letter of 2 Corinthians is filled with this theme, the blessings that come from displacing our self-sufficiency with Christ's sufficiency. At the very beginning of that letter, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now, the meaning of comfort today has a very different connotation than it did in Paul's day. Today we think of comfort as patting a crying child on the back. But in Paul's day it meant to energize and encourage and strengthen. And that's why when God weakens us in the way, it's to comfort us and encourage us. That's why. And again, unmet longings, things that make us discontented, are, are very real forms of suffering. But this is what God is up to in our lives. We're comforted by God in order to show that comfort to others. And just a few verses later, Paul writes, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, ooh, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So one of the things going on in your life right now, one of the things that's causing you discontent is this. God is about making you rely on him and not yourself. That's one of the things going on in this unmet need in your life. And in chapter 4, Paul reveals that God lets us be weak in order to show that he is strong. He wrote, we have this treasure, the kingdom of God, Christ, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And near the end of the letter, he writes this, Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, Paul meant the other people he was writing to, we live with him by the power of God. Everything we do is by God's power. And, and the more we see our own weakness, 
the more we're going to know his strength. It just seems so clear from this letter that Paul had gone through really hard times. But rather than shake up his faith, it strengthened it because he kept his eyes on Jesus. He had an eternal perspective. He didn't try to dictate the course of his own life. And he was willing to suffer if that's what God called him to. And that's the big question, isn't it, for all of us? Are we willing? Because if we are, we're going to find the same comfort and joy and hope and contentment that Paul did. So if there's something in your life right now, an unmet longing, a confusing circumstance, a painful relationship, and it's making you fearful and robbing you of joy, here are a few things to consider. 1 John 2.16 all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Earthly desires, they're all passing away. So whatever's going on circumstantially in your life right now, it's not forever. And someday you're going to look at it and it's going to be nothing. Now, Psalm 34, 8 to 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Will you taste and see? Because if you will, you're going to look at your life and you're going to realize that nothing is missing. Now, whatever's going on right now, God is at work to make you whole and more hope-filled. Isn't that amazing? That's what's going on in this thing that's causing discontentment in your life. This is what God is up to. The paradoxes of God, the things that seem so hopeless, are actually working to make us more hopeful. That's what he's about. And we know this from Paul, who had so very little and yet lived such a joy-filled life. This apostle who was called to suffer so much is the one who wrote, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of place, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And see, even Paul had to learn contentment. It's not automatic. We do it as we, as we consider all these biblical principles that we've talked about today. That's how Paul learned it. It's learned. So if you're struggling with it, that's normal. It's learned, but it can be learned. That's the thing. And we know how Paul got there. Ultimately, it's because Christ was his treasure. Jesus Christ is where we find it. That's where Paul found it. How else can we explain his contentment? It certainly wasn't based on his circumstances. And Christ is our treasure too, not because we decide to assign him that value, because, but because he already has that value. And we'll find it if we look there. And as we draw near to the end of this day, of this conference, you might be thinking, I get that, I really do, but I've tried all this before. And while I believe it in theory, my heart just can't get to this place. But if you have Christ, you can. That's all you need. 
that's not a cliche. It's not a Christian cliche. It's more a matter of, are you willing? The problem is always, always, always our own heart. It may not feel that way, but that's the truth. Since God's word says that Christ and his kingdom are our greatest treasure, it must be true. God's word never lies, but our own hearts do. And Jeremiah wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Only God. He knows each of our hearts. Now, if you're harboring competing treasure or refusing to take up your cross and die to yourself and your idea of what your life should look like, if you're resistant to that, if you're doubting God's goodness or thinking that his goodness won't really be good in the way you hope, do what Jesus said. He said, seek and you will find. As the psalmist said, taste and see. Taste and see. The place to begin is by telling God the truth about where you really are today. If you doubt that God is really your greatest treasure, you don't have to go to him with all the right words. A prepackaged prayer of what you think he wants to hear. He responds to honesty because it's a relationship building move toward him. It's our hearts he wants more than anything else, not the right spiritual words. So let's be honest with him, our kind father and friend. We can tell him we can tell him that we've had our heart focused on things here for so long that it's hard to grasp that life can be anything but that and that we can actually be contented with what he holds out. And we can ask him to show us who he really is and to change our heart. Well, I shared with you that from the time I was a little girl, I ached for a father and that I spent a number of years doing all I could to get him to love me. And I was discontented because I thought I needed his love in order to be okay. And isn't that true for all of us concerning our deepest longings? But the reality is there's only one thing I needed to be okay, and that's a relationship with Jesus. It's true for all of us. But it took me years to realize it. And years later, when I was still going through this and reflecting on it, I realized something that God had done in that thorn in my life. I've worked for a lot of Christian organizations, a lot of churches, and I was thinking back on this and I realized that every pastor I worked for is the father of daughters. And I was able to see what God intended good fathering to look like. And not only did they father those daughters, they took excellent care of me. They stepped in and fathered me when I needed it. And then as I thought more about it, I realized how precious God as father had become to me. If it weren't for that thorn, I wouldn't have seen this. And I saw how God was weaving things in my life to make up for that fathering, both from himself and in earth, very earthly ways. And I came to see that God is the best father. And then I no longer needed my dad to be okay. That day, sitting on my floor, as that hit me, I realized I didn't need my father to love me. And instead of being discouraged about it, I thought, it, it was a stark realization, I thought, he is never going to love me the way I want. And it didn't crush me. I felt free. For the first time in my life, I felt free of that. And because I was free of that, I was able to really love him for the first time. 
You know, Ed Welch always said we need to love people more and need them less. And the whole time I was demanding in my heart that my father love me, I wasn't able to love him. I was too in need of what I wanted from him. And as my love for him grew, I pitied him and his lostness and the train wreck he made of his life. And I started to anguish over, over his lostness and, and, and pray for him instead of thinking about what I was getting from him. I saw him as he really was. And, and you know, it's interesting. Five years ago, he came back into our lives. And his wife died. The woman he'd left my mother to marry died. And suddenly, he realized he was in need. And he needed his children, my brother and me. And he lived far away, so um, we brought him to live nearer where we are. And it was amazing. We started, my brother has family dinner every Sunday night for the whole family. My mother's there. My father started coming. And it, the whole family. Who, I mean, so few people get that opportunity. If your parents are broken apart, how often do you, 30 years later, get to have dinner around the same table? So this is what God was taking with my thorn and doing. And, and I'd given up any hope. And I didn't, I was free of it. I was fine with it. It wasn't a discouraged hope. I was free. But God loves to show us sometimes that when a thorn happens and he's grown us through it and he's done all this, that, that, that that's not the end of the story. Sometimes he comes back in and, and, and takes care of the thorn and does remove it. He did a beautiful thing in this situation. My dad was back in our lives. We had a relationship. He no longer forbade me to bring a Bible into his presence. He stopped scorning me for my faith. He wasn't all jumping for joy about it, but I could, I could talk about the gospel. I could be there without his scorning me and scorning the Lord. So he was still pretty much who he was. Um, not a very nice person, kind of mean. And, but I've always, I've always, I've loved my father. And two years ago, it was right about this time of year, and I was still living in Chicago, and I'd come back east to New York to visit the family for a weekend, and my father and I went out to dinner. That never would have happened before. We went out to dinner, one-on-one, -on -one, and had a good conversation, and the next day, I flew home to Chicago. And that night, I got a phone call from my brother saying, Dad fell, and we're taking him into the hospital just to check him out and make sure he's okay. We're not quite sure why he fell. So the next morning, I got a call that they'd admitted him to the hospital because he'd gotten pneumonia, and that turns out to be what weakened him and what made him fall. And so I said, should I come back? Should I get on a plane and come back to New York? No, no, we'll be okay. Uh, well, then a few hours later, another phone call that they had decided they needed to put him on a ventilator to help him breathe. Uh, but my father had a, a do not resuscitate, a, uh, one of those living wills, where he didn't want any life support of any kind. So we sort of weren't sure what to do about this ventilator, but they said, oh, it's not to keep him alive, it's just to help him get over the hurdle of the pneumonia. So we agreed to go ahead and do it, and they said it will just be for a few days, and then we'll take it out. So I'm waiting by the phone, hearing how it's all going, and then um, I got another phone call in the middle of the night saying that he developed an infection and a blood infection, and that maybe I better think about coming back. So I booked a flight 
and and um, on the way on the plane the whole way back I just remember thinking I wanted to see him one more time before he died and they pretty much told us he wasn't going to live this had all gone so fast and I thought if this had happened a few years ago you know and I, I, I just I well God had brought him back it was wonderful but here he was, he was still lost. And that had been the thing that caused me so much anguish. I don't want my father to die without the Lord. And I remember praying right then, God, how can I live the rest of my life knowing this person I love might go to hell? The thought of that was unbearable for me. So the whole way there, let me see him, let me see him. Please don't let him die. And it was just, so I got to the hospital and there he was. And we decided to take the vent out because he wasn't going to live anyway, and he'd become life support at that point. So the doctors warned us when they pulled the vent that he could die right, right away. And it might take a little while, but he could die right away. So they pulled the vent out, and what does my dad do? He sat up, he started talking. And so the doctors said, oh, don't get your hopes up. You know, and they decided comfort measures only at that point, and the nurses are coming in and telling us, you know, if, if you want to give him morphine, you, there's no limit on that. And that was sort of their way of easing him out and helping us not to get our hope up. Um, so the doctor said he'll probably be gone by morning. And so my brother and I are sitting on either side of his bed that night. And my father was sort of in and out of consciousness and getting a little bit weaker, but his heart rate stayed at 80 beats a minute. And his oxygen level was 100%. He was doing great, and we're thinking, have we made a mistake? Maybe he's going to be okay. And my brother turned to me then, my brother is not a believer, and he said, what is God up to? And right before that, I had prayed and said, Lord, I don't know how to pray right now. You got me here, I'm with him, he's still alive, but he's going to die, and I don't know whether to pray and ask you to take him because he's suffering, but I don't want to pray that because he's not saved. So my faith is weak, and I, help me, help me. So I just turned to my brother, and I, I just said, I don't know what God is doing, but I know God is here. And my father, my brother, said, you know, the only thing that would keep Dad out of heaven is some of the bad things he did. And I said, no, that's not what would keep him out of heaven. What would keep him out of heaven is not believing that Christ paid for those bad things he did. So we had a long conversation about the gospel, and my father in and out of consciousness. Don't know what the Lord did with that, but um, hopefully he heard some of it. Uh, but the next morning, the doctors came in and saw how well he was continuing to do and said it could take four more days. And I just remember thinking, we have to sit here for four more days watching him die. And where was the Lord? And so my brother decided then he needed to go home and see his children. And I stayed in the hospital room. It was the first time I was alone with my father. And I went over to his bed, and I put my hand on his shoulder. And I told him that the whole, all the past was forgiven. And that though he'd never been able to tell me he loved me, I knew he did. And that I had always loved him so much. And he got a little smile at the corner of his lips. So I knew he, would, he could hear me. And then I opened my Bible, and I started reading passages, started reading the gospel, and started reading about grace and mercy. 
and I talked to him about his lifelong war with God and how he'd spent his life at war with God and how I knew he'd come to believe in God because I'd found a little note to that effect in his dresser after his wife died. And I said, I know, I know you believe this, but in your pride, in your stubbornness, you're refusing. But what you need now is grace and mercy. And as I'm reading scripture, his heart rate lowered 10 points. And then I started to get emotional, so I stopped, went and sat down. And it was the old fear, whenever I'd cry or get emotional around my father, he'd get very angry. So that always was with me. So I just thought, don't get emotional around him right now. So I went and sat down, and his heart rate leveled off. So I got myself together, and a few minutes later I got up and went and started the process again. I was reading scripture and praying, talking to him about the Lord, and as I'm doing that, his heart rate lowers 10 more points. So then I stopped, a nurse had come in, it levels off again. And it's funny because I could recognize suddenly that the only time his heart rate moved is when I was praying and reading scripture. And every time I'd stop, it would level off. And I'm not, I'm not charismatic when it comes to spiritual things, but I can tell you, I've never felt the presence of the Holy Spirit like I did in that hospital room. It made me think of the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and how when Lazarus died, they'd gone, Mary and Martha had said to him, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And Jesus was there with, and he wept for his compassion. And that's what was in that room. I was just, this sense of, of, of the Lord's compassion and power was so palpable in that room. So it was amazing. And, and so this went on for 45 minutes, the same pattern. And the only time his heart rate moved was when I was reading and praying scripture. And at the end of that time, he died. His, the flat line came over. And then I finally let myself go, and I lost it. And I thought, they, I called my brother right away and told him. And he said, what happened? They said it would be four days. And I told him what had happened. And, and I don't know where my father ended up. I have no idea about his eternal destiny. But I do know this. I have never once anguished about where he is. Because the Lord is sufficient. He was there in that room, and that's enough for me. His power, his compassion, he knows. And that had been the thing. How could I live with knowing someone I loved died with, and, and I don't know if he knows the Lord. I mean, I have every hope for his eternal security given how he died, but I don't know. But I don't need to know. It's okay. God knows and that's enough. And look what God gave me. That thorn he'd allowed in my life all those years. I was with him. I was the one who was with him when he died. I was the one, the only one who still loved him, and I got to be there. And I ended up ushering him out of life in, for the very thing he'd scorned me for all my life. God is amazing. He can do all kinds of things with the thorns he leaves in our lives, even remove them in his perfect time. That thorn, that one thing that for years had made me doubt God's care for me. Why did he withhold from me all those years a dad's love like other girls had? That's all I wanted. It made me suspicious of God, of his power and his kindness and his willingness to involve himself in my heartache. So I went my own way for years, seeking happiness where I thought I could find it. 
But God was there all along. That thorn was his design. He chose the family I was born into, and he gave me that particular father to bring me to himself and to give my life more meaning than I ever could have imagined. I see now that his grace was sufficient for my weakness. And make no mistake, many of you may well know, being abandoned by one's father is most definitely something that weakens a girl. But that was the entry point into my life for God as my father. And the sinful choices I made along the way were preparation to love others who sin in similar ways. When you know the shame of great sin, you don't judge others who sin in the same way. You can relate to the pain beneath it, and then you can give them what God has given to, to, what he's given to me. Grace, mercy, comfort, love, and hope. Now, when you think the fact that there's, there's so many women here on a conference about contentment shows what a struggle it is for so many of us. But it doesn't have to be that way. God wants our contentment even more than we do. So whatever thorn you have in your life today, God is up to something in it. I don't know what your personal struggle is, but God does. And he brought you here this weekend, not to free your life from it, but to free your heart. And that difficult circumstance might change tomorrow or next year, or it might not change until the next life. But regardless, true contentment, happiness, is right here for you right now in Christ. And I want to close with these words that John Newton wrote a long time ago. It's a hymn. Maybe, maybe some of you know it. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know, and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it, it, it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by loves, by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ, from self and pride to set thee free, and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayest find thy all in me. Amen.